Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important Important information. The paradigm changes everything. Hope is the only positive emotion that requires negativity or uncertainty to be activated. Hello and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today we welcome Dan Tomasulo on the show. Dan is a counseling psychologist, professor, and the academic director at the Spirituality Mind Body Institute, SMBI, at Teachers College, Columbia University. He holds a PhD in psychology, an MFA in writing, and a master's of applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. Dan is also the author of several books, including American Snake Pit and Confessions of a Former Child, a Therapist's Memoir. His latest book is called Learned Hopefulness. In this episode, I talked to Dan about psychodrama and learned hopefulness. Interventions have always focused on helping people recover from trauma, but Dan believes we can do more than that through psychodrama. When we reenact difficult experiences, we can process and integrate trauma in a way that facilitates growth. It also teaches us to perceive obstacles differently, which is integral to learning hopefulness. I've been friends with Dan for a while, and he's one of the most genuine, kindest, and thoughtful humans I know. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and you learn a lot from him from the many areas that he's pioneered, including psychodrama. So I'm really excited to present Dan Tomasulo. The legendary Dan Tomasulo. (laughs) Let's jump into this interview. Fabulous. You are a fascinating, fascinating guy. (laughs) <laughs> and with a someone like you, it's kind of like uh, tricky to know where to start. But I will start here. And that's I would love to hear about your 1980s improv experience <laughs> and experience as a stand up comedian. Wow. What a place to start. Yeah. You know, I was always fascinated with comedy. And I guess my character strength of uh, humor was always near the top. Not that I really knew uh, character strengths back then, but certainly that. And um you know, I, I was so influenced by uh, uh, Robin Williams, Steve Martin, certainly Andy Kaufman, and they, they were breaking new ground. You look at George Carlin, and I was a Lenny Bruce freak, and I thought, man, what a way to make a living, right? What a yeah. way to do it. Yeah. And so I went to uh, an open audition. I got a call back and then got a second call back. 
and then uh, then they put you on the schedule at uh, at the improv. But they have you doing the uh, the early crowd first, you know, before everybody gets loosened up. So you have to take time and develop your chops. But I had been a, a comedy writer before that, just writing jokes and uh, trying to sell them and, you know, selling them to, I don't know, Rod- Rodney Dangerfield or Phyllis Diller. These are comics back in the day, you know. But when I finally got on stage, it was like, oh, my God. You know, performance of any other kind, if you talk about music, if you talk about um, uh, really any other performance, it can be three, four, five minutes before you get any feedback from the audience, right? Cause just, but in comedy, it's, it's rarely longer than 30 seconds and usually closer to 15. So you're going to know right away how well you're doing. <laughs> well, were you good? Were you good? I was good enough. Let me put it that way. And I did get picked for the 20th anniversary where they picked four of us to be the next generation of comics. Um, and that was, that, that's still floating around on the internet someplace, but, um, uh, it was, it was good, but I, I don't think I had the chops for the lifestyle. Uh, at that time, you know, I was finishing my PhD and I was working five nights a week and not getting home till five in the morning, starting classes at eight thirty. And you can only do that when you're young and naive. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, or you're old and famous already. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you, I think, you know, the next part, you know, I, I had a piece of my research published from my dissertation and it was uh, Jerome Singer. Who, uh, you know, uh, obviously we share that in common, you know, up at, uh, up at Yale, who said, you've got to go see the psychodramatists. And that's when, uh, a deep love of psychology and, um, performance and humor, uh, all came together because it was like, I don't have to sacrifice and, and make a choice. I can move in this space. Yes. And he, Jerome Singer, legend in uh, the study of imagery and psychodrama and daydreaming, the value of daydreaming. Were you a big daydreamer as a child, Dan? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, the uh, when I went to sleep is when I got some rest from daydreaming. You mm. know? <laughs> that, that is actually quite hilarious. See, that was funny. That was Thank funny. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Who were some of the comics that you uh, intersected with in the 80s that you personally met? There were a bunch. I mean, even even that night, which was just, uh, you know, it was Joe Piscopo, uh, Robin Williams showed up. They had the person I had the most contact with, uh, though, was uh, Andy Kaufman. Andy was there almost every night. And um, what would happen is around two o'clock in the morning is the end of the shows. And uh, the improv, their motto was Hell's Kitchen to Hollywood. So it was right smack in the middle of Hell's Kitchen. And all the comics would come back at 2 o'clock. And from 2 to 4 or 4.30 or 5, uh, we'd play to each other. And uh, uh, comics are like the best and the worst audience. They'll laugh at anything. But if it's really not good, they'd just as soon, you know, <laughs> toss you in the street. Can I, can I tell you a, a, a quick Andy Kaufman story? Oh, please do. He's my brother. Oh, man. So uh, so one night, Andy was regaling us with where he came up with Foreign Man. You know, now he was Elvis's most favorite impersonator. Like oh. El- Elvis saw him as his his favorite impersonator. So he was talking about the fact that he left the improv one night after doing an Elvis bit. And, you know, how he ends it with, you know, thank you very much, you know, that kind of thing. Well, he goes outside and about half a block up from the improv, he gets mugged by two guys with knives. And 
he starts talking in this gibberish to them when they pull the knife out. And he was going, you know, he was doing the beginning of foreign man. And they, they said a couple of curse words and they walked away. And then, uh, as they're walking away, he still had Elvis in his head and he went, thank you very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the Elvis and the thank you very much were the, the transition points. Oh and another night he came in about two thirty in the morning with a bike gang. And these were not from central casting. This was a bike gang. And he walked in and a bunch of scrawny comics were there and he just walked right up on stage with them. I forgot who was on stage at the time, but. He walked right up on there and he ta- has his bongo drums and he just starts playing his drums and everybody is scared and laughing at the same time, which is really what he became known for, right? Uh, the yeah. wrestling and everything else. He came up on stage and he starts doing his bongo drums and he starts singing, Whenever I Feel Afraid, right? Whenever I feel afraid, I whistle a happy tune. And then he gets to the refrain, and no one will suspect. And these guys in chorus all go, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we just about, you know, lost it. It was so hysterical. He was on stage for less than three minutes. That was a Tuesday night. Saturday Night Live, he opens with that skit. Oh, my God. That's funny. Yeah. He was kind of trying it out. Yep, yep. We needed a little rehearsal, and we were yeah. it. I love it. I see you knew him personally. Well, I wouldn't say he would know me if he saw me in the club, yeah. you know, that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. Gotcha. It wasn't like, oh, Danny boy, I'm glad you're here. Uh, but, they, <laughs> uh, it, you know, but uh, he was from, he was not from this world. Man on the Moon was the right, right movie yeah. about him. Yeah. And of course, you know, Jim Carrey. When did you get your dissertation? Like, why do you why do you decide to go into psychology or into psychodrama? Uh, these are good questions. Let's see. So, give me a timeline here. Yeah, yeah. So, if, uh, if you look at the late seventies, early eighties, and you look at my transcript from undergraduate, you would see that the only thing I was really good at was psychology, and so I had A's in that and not A's in other things. And then I got a job. Um, in the university mailroom so that they could pay for my tuition. I was not on scholarship, I'll say that. And so I took the courses, I did well in them. And then when I decided to go for the uh, doctorate, it was really the fact that I had then gotten a job working with people with intellectual disabilities who had special needs. And man, I found that nobody was doing any work with them in the early 80s, nobody. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm interested I, I seem good at this, or at least not bad at it. And perhaps I could study developmental psychology and, you know, move move forward. And so sure enough, I did that. And um, right as I was finishing my dissertation is when all the comedy stuff was, was happening. So I was in the city a lot, live in New Jersey, but I was in the city a lot. And my, my cousin, who was going to NYU for um, uh, film, was running a bar called uh, Kettle of Fish, famous dive bar in New York City. And he had been there forever, um, but was also a heroin uh, addict. And at that time, he was in a methadone maintenance program, but that was back when they were 
there was a ring of physicians selling drugs. And so what ended up happening, they'd give you a double dose, you'd sell it on the street and you'd sell yours and then, you know, get, get heroin. Uh, but he was just chipping. So what happened is we had dinner, uh, one night. I went, did my comedy thing. Then in the morning went to school. He went home and overdosed. And so literally on a dime, I changed from wanting to be a researcher and developmental psychologist to wanting to be a clinician. So that was wow. a really big change. And Jeez. then, you know, I think that also kind of squashed the, not squashed, but evolved, I should say, the, the comedy thing into psychodrama mm-hmm. when, when Jerome Singer pointed me in that direction. It was like somebody, stuff I had always heard about, like things like, split mothers and stuff like that it was like all of a sudden i understood it because it was being enacted and and i felt a true affinity for it and then took the next 13 years to get trained (laughs) now where was this right here in new york right here in new york it was uh uh at the time the um uh, Center for Sociotherapy. And this is so Moreno, uh, the founder of it, who was a contemporary of Freud's, was, um, I guess, in his 70s at that point. And my, my trainers were like first generation trained by them. They had taken over the insti- institute. Where did you encounter Jerome Singer then? In what context? So I had written a piece of research uh, on imagery uh, for, yeah. as part of my dissertation, and it was uh, criticizing somebody in his department. I figured it may as well start off, <laughs> yeah. start off at the top and uh, work your way down. And and the, the criticism was just based on the fact that my findings were 180 degrees different than what this guy found. Uh, and it had to do with memory and the use of bizarreness to facilitate memory, bizarre imagery, like in mnemonics and that kind of stuff. And I had uh, researched it at developmental ages so that um, the older the child got, uh, the more you could use bizarre imagery uh, in order to facilitate memory. So that's why things like Sesame Street at the time, which, you know, Jerome was a consultant for that, right? There was all the big thing, all the big rage of, uh, oh, we could teach kids and get them to laugh, get them to have these bizarre images, and then they would learn. And I was trying to investigate, like, what age that would work and not work. And basically what I found is um, that there was a peak in the ages where you could use the imagery to facilitate uh, memory. And I had found that effect after, let's say, I don't remember it off the top of my head, but let's say in three weeks. And this person was finding that there was no effect with the use of, uh, uh, of the imagery. And uh, when, when I went there and was invited to do the presentation, he was very generous and very kind. He said, well... I measured it in six weeks. You measured it in three. So it's probably uh, a bell curve, a U curve. You know, it's like you, you can't, you caught it at the peak, which we didn't see because we measured it over here. So it was, it was really not that I had found anything different, just that I, there was a peak point where it would facilitate memory, but afterwards it would disintegrate. Well, thanks for that little nerdy uh, explanation of your dissertation. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Our audience is wrapped attention. <laughs> well, that's why I left research, Red. That's it. Exactly. That's how we do it. Well, that's wonderful. 
at what point did you get an introduction to Willowbrook? Because you did, you played a huge role in the deinstitutionalization of Willowbrook, and your memoir, American Snake Pit, is incredible. <laughs> I mean, that story is so touching. Can you tell people a little about that uh, the, and uh, the experimental group home and uh, what you did there? Sure, Scott. Uh, really, thank you so much for asking about that. You know, the the truth of the matter is, I was not passionate about the folks or the job or the information. I, I did not start out with, oh, I have a mission. So when I got a job, you know, working in human services and working with a population that was really ignored for the most part, I, I was stunned that psychologists hadn't spent more time trying to understand what these folks need. And then it, I got pulled into it more. It was sort of like, oh, you know, I have whatever skills I have or whatever way of thinking about these things I have, but nobody else was really in that field except for a, a handful of folks at that time. And so little by little by little, uh, I was learning. And then also, you know, because I was trained in psychodrama, so it's, it's, you know, it's adding to the verbal therapy. You know, if you look at the studies from the seventies, they would say, uh, people with intellectual disabilities wouldn't profit from psychotherapy because it's uh, too verbally loaded and they can't process cognitively, blah, blah, blah. So I was using psychodrama to kind of show all of that in the places I was working. Working. But then, as has happened a few times in my academic career, I wasn't getting enough money to pay for the tuition. I had some scholarships, some this, some that, but it was just a rough, rough time financially. And uh, this this group called YAI was hiring. And they were hiring for somebody to run an experimental group home. And I basically talked myself into the job because there weren't anybody, uh, there was nobody else doing this, you know, no, no PhD type psychology students looking to do it. And, uh, so I talked myself into the job and then really found that I had bitten off more than I could chew because this, this was not people who had slight attention dilemmas. These are people who are polydiagnostic, intellectual, psychiatric, and usually a tertiary disability like uh, uh, blindness, auditory problems, difficulty walking, you know, something in addition to the other things. And then, and then I had to educate myself very quickly and start to see really what was going on at Willowbrook. So, you know, taking the tours, meeting the people, evaluating them, trying to put together a home where people could have a chance. But technically at the time in New York, uh, they were just trying to throw money at it and make it go away. Mm. So I had a staff of about 30 people for 10 residents, right? And then eventually we ended up with a staff of about four people uh, for six residents because nobody wanted to work there. People would come in. They So the idea was the state was going to throw a lot of money at this have it fail, and then take the people back into the institution. This wasn't the first tier of people coming out or the second. This is what they call the third tier, which were the people who had all of these problems, and they were never supposed to make it. It was supposed to show, we're going to try, it'll fail, and then we'll bring them back and keep the institutions basically still running. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, in American Snake Pit, you find out that quite surprisingly, these people had gifts and abilities that were awakened 
when the right opportunity came along. But I will say that the right opportunity took some trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's incredible. It's an incredible story, and uh, I think we both share the attempt to show people that they have potential, even yeah. if no one else believes in them. You've really made that point in such an eloquent way over and over again. In your you. own story, of course. You know? Well, thank you. It's uh, obviously why I resonated so much with, with that story. Um, so how many years of your life? That was a big chunk of your life. Yeah, it still is. By the way, yeah. the I'm still a consultant for the place that hired me oh, wow. uh, in 1979. Oh, my God. And, You're and, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm still... <laughs> I've been consulting as long as you've been alive. Uh-oh. Uh, that's hysterical. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, actually, uh, uh, the proceeds for American Snake Pit have been donated uh, to YAI. So, um, uh, you know, not that they're going to uh, uh, build a wing with the, the money from it, but at the very least, uh, it was a, I felt it was a story that needed to be told, but it wouldn't seem uh, proper if the proceeds didn't go back to them. That makes sense. That made, that's good. <laughs> the trauma, loss, and uncertainty of our world have led many of us to ask life's biggest questions, such as who are we? What is our highest purpose? And how do we not only live through, but thrive in the wake of tragedy, division, and challenges to our fundamental way of living? To help us all address these questions, process what this unique time in human history has meant for us personally and collectively, and emerge whole, I've collaborated with my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Jordan Feingold, MD, to bring you our forthcoming book. It's called Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. It's a workbook designed to guide you on a journey of committing to growth and the pursuit of self-actualization every day. It's chock full of research from humanistic psychology, positive psychology, developmental psychology, personality psychology, cognitive science, and neuropsychology. So lots of themes that you hear about on this podcast. And it's aimed to help us all integrate the many facets of ourselves and co-create our new normal with a renewed sense of strength, vitality, and hope. Whether you're healing from loss, adapting to the new normal, or simply looking ahead to life's next chapter, Choose Growth will help steer you there to deeper connection to your values, your life vision, and ultimately your most authentic self. Choose Growth will officially hit the shelves September 13th, and you can order your copy or the audiobook in the U.S. now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all major retailers. If you're in the U.K. and Commonwealth, you can order now at bookshop.org.uk. We truly hope this book helps you grow and thrive and become your best self. Okay, now back to the show. Okay, so what then drew you to the field of positive psychology? I guess that's really fast-forwarding quite a right. bit. Or you, right. maybe you could fill in some of the, the, the missing pieces there. <laughs> the missing parts. Uh, right. That, and uh, <laughs> you found uh, Martin Seligman, 1998. Actually, I, uh, it was 2010 when I really got all jazzed up about about that. But, it, you know, actually, it's, it's you know, your, your question... Uh, gives me pause for thought because uh, what happened um, through the evolution of working with people uh, from Willowbrook and then in that field and then r really finding a way to develop, I developed a form of group therapy back then called Interactive Behavioral Therapy, IBT. Tell us a little bit about it. What does it do? 
Well, it was actually very, very simple design. You know, I was a real fan uh, because of psychodrama of uh, Yalom's work in group psychotherapy. So I taught group therapy at the graduate level for a long time, undergraduate level as well. And, you know, one of the, one of the things I realized is that if you're going to try to use all the research that's out there to reach people who are uh, different populations, you're going to need modifications. So if you look at the early studies in the late 70s, early 80s on psychotherapy for people with intellectual disabilities, they all failed. Uh, but the longest study only went out eight sessions. <laughs> and so you either had people proficient at group, but not proficient with the population mm. or vice versa. You know, they really knew the population didn't really know group. And I, I happened to be in that space where I knew both, but my vehicle was psychodrama. So we added role playing as a central feature into IBT. Mm. Uh, because this way, if you've got six intellectually disabled people, uh, in a group, the the whole first layer of group has to be about getting their attention and orientation. So I designed a group format where the first stage required the facilitator to get them together to literally physically orient and look at one another and then uh, build the agenda. You know, what are we going to talk about? And if it was a work group, this, that, and the other thing. And as that's started to evolve, what became very clear is that if you added a tiny bit of movement, a little bit of role-playing or action, everybody's attention went up. We did studies about, you know, attention span, awareness, recall. If I put an empty chair in the middle of a group of six individuals who have intellectual disability, now I've got their attention. <laughs> yeah. I haven't said or done anything. But now you can use that empty chair in a way that keeps the core of the group focused, such as what would you tell a new person coming into this group about the good things this group has to offer? Make believe they're sitting in the chair. Well, the activation and it creates something called act hunger, brings people into that space, you know? And um, anyway, the long and the short of it is, as uh, this developed, and there's, there's four or five other major techniques that went with it, but at the end of it, we have what's called an affirmation stage. I didn't know I was a budding positive psychologist back then, where the facilitators were trained to go back through the whole group and recall any of his therapeutic factors and feed it back to the membership. So if somebody was crying in the group and somebody else handed them a box of tissues, that would be a spontaneous act of altruism. You'd say, oh, you know, Frank, it looks like you are concerned about Susie because she was crying and it was uh, a very kind thing of you to bring those tissues. And so we were strengthening the therapeutic factors that Yalom had. And he was helpful. He was very helpful in helping me understand them and turning me on to some of the ones that were beyond what was in the book. And what evolved from there was was actually kind of cool because we started to realize that everybody in the groups didn't matter. And we had at that point about 2,000 groups around the world in all the social countries with socialized medicine. Everybody picked it up because it was easy to use and easy to teach. But everybody was traumatized. So again, not that I had a big interest in it. I, I just saw sort of an opening for it and learned about trauma with this population. You come to find out as a group, as I'm sure you already know, they're the most traumatized 
population there is because they lack the cognitive skill that would keep it. And what we started to find out is that really simple things that we would all sort of get through, they would be traumatized by, like a sibling leaving for college or the breakup of a romantic relationship that was short-lived, you know, they would be, they would have full-blown PTSD symptoms for the criteria at the time. And so I actually was the lead author on the rewriting the criteria for PTSD for that, that group. So I'm only mentioning that because I think to be a good positive psychologist, you probably have to have some experience with trauma. <laughs> You know, I do like that. Yeah. Right. It's the springboard, right? You know, I should have done this earlier, but what is psychodrama? Like I I should have asked you earlier, like, what is it? Well, it's a, it's a theory and a methodology, right? So when people say psychodrama, because you hear that all the time, oh, there was such psychodrama. So there's a theory about it and then there's uh, methods about it. So as an example, it preceded and actually facilitated the development of Gestalt, right? So Gestalt came later, but they borrowed many of the, of the techniques. The idea is that there are scenes that we have in our psyche that house um, uh, energy, either positive or negative, that need to be explored. Now, psychodrama went the way of most of psychology in that the scenes were used to unlock a block from negative energy. You know, it was about the amelioration of suffering, not really the facilitation of something positive. But in these these enactments, you'd go back and reenact a difficult scene or a block scene. Right. So the traditional methodology of of psychodrama is that um, if you go back and get to that stuck energy and find ways to release it in real time through the magic of, you know, reenactment, that scene reenacted would evoke the original negative emotions. But during that time, you have a chance to do a correction. So I loved it. Because if you look at how the history of rational motor therapy and CBT and all these other things, they were corrective, but they were using a correction with language. This was using a somatic correction and something known as embodied cognition. Just like how an actor trains for something. We'd go back to the vignette. We'd go back to the trauma, you know, play it out the way it happened and then go back and correct it. And the beautiful part about this, going all the way back to Aristotle, was that um, instead of just a genuine catharsis of the negative energy being purged, uh, psychodrama provided what's called a, a, a catharsis of integration. So once the the purge emerged, ooh, I like the fact that that part. Once the purge emerged, <laughs> then the information got put back together in a different way. So the trauma doesn't leave you, but it gets reintegrated differently. And that to me was a fascination. And so a lot of the work I do now, positive psychology and psychodrama, is uh, like the virtual gratitude visit or the benevolent self, our encounters with uh, aspects of our ourselves or the interject of somebody inside of us that activate the positive emotion that's been dormant. And in that Activation of the positive is an integration uh, that has a cathartic element to it. People are lifted by it rather than suppressed. It sounds really promising for lots of things. I mean, where where is the field today? Like, is it is it very popular? 
Not in the United States as much as you would want, but I do I don't some hear work about it that much. Except no, from no. You. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in the United States. I mean, we have the organization, we have all the formal things, but the reason why here, psychodrama is a secondary credential. So you already have to be something else before you can go train for this, right? So you have psychologists or social workers or LPCs or, you know, all folks who have a main profession and then psychodrama. But if you go to other countries, like I do some work in Brazil, oh my goodness, it is really robust because it's mm. very dynamic. I think right now what what what's happening is particularly if because uh, what's happened with uh, IBT for the people with intellectual disabilities, I've added the character strengths to the therapeutic factors. So now you have individual character strengths and group therapeutic factors. So 38 different things that facilitators are trained to look for. And so what happens, you see interactive growth and evolution with the group, but you also see, you know, the um, resource priming and resource activation. And th this sort of percolates and, and, and comes about. For psychodrama, I think that the dilemma if I can call it a dilemma. It's where uh, psychology was 25 years ago uh, in the sense that we're still just trying to deal with the pain. And there's only a handful of us who are trying to say, listen, we got these great tools. Why don't we activate the 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 positive emotions so that there's more of a, uh, a shift in the ratio, a shift in the balance, because we have a tool that knows how to unlock them. And yeah, sure, we know how to deal with the pain, but uh, there's a whole class of vignettes and, and dramas. Just look at, look at the probably you would know this better than I, but I think the uh, best possible self is one of the most effective and well-researched um, interventions for optimism, right? Yeah. And yeah. So what happens if you take the BPS and enact it? Don't just talk about it. Don't just jot it down. Those are good, but those are all secondary. Why don't you take a three-minute vignette and live it? Speak mm. from the future. Speak from that role. Become that. My sense of that would be that that would be a, an accelerant to the positive feeling. Not just, uh, you know, another rendition of it, but I think people, once they embody it, would really evolve. Yeah. Did you, you should write that paper. Um, I'm working on it. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on it's in the, the It's in the new book, actually, that I'm uh, trying to finish up this month. But that uh, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Is your new book about psychodrama? Uh, well, it, it's very heavily... Uh, invested in action methods. Oh, cool. It's called the uh, positivity effect. And uh, it's basically about using embodied cognition to uh, stimulate and activate positive emotions in a, in a more rapid way and in a more sustainable way than you might get if it's just a cognition or a written reaction. Cool. Well, I look forward to that one. Yeah, we'll um, see. I really yeah. love your most recent book, Learn Hopefulness. When you got into the field of positive psychology, did you immediately uh, gravitate towards the idea of hope? Was it something that uh, early on gravitated towards, or was that a, a, a process for you? Yeah, uh, really powerful questions, Scott, because I hit a low point, you know, and after 
being a trauma expert, and then all of a sudden you find out, oh, wait a minute, I'm struggling with PTSD. I had had an event happen that uh, set me back, and I couldn't shake it. And it, it bothered me because I have access to a lot of resources at that point in my life. And I thought, Jesus, if I can't shake this, what what are we peddling here? <laughs> what do we sell it, you know? And a friend of mine was becoming a positive psychologist at the time, and he was all about Marty Seligman and stuff. And I, I really was not. I was not a fan. That's changed quite a bit. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm an experiential therapist. So the idea of cognitive therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy was like, yeah, that's okay. But, uh, you know, drama was where it's at. But um, he took me to the first IPA conference. And I'm proud to say I've been at every one since. And, you know, Barbara Fredrickson, Bob Valerone, you know, Marty, of course. I think even Phil Zimbardo was there talking about the psychology of evil. But I was like, oh, my God. If even a a tenth of this is true, psychology is on the threshold of something amazing. And I wanted to be part of it. And so uh, I I, (laughs) jumped, jumped on it. Yeah, in your own way, you know, you you added your own flavor to it. You brought your own unique experience, background. Well, you do that with everything you do. You kind of as it, as do you, my friend. The Dan Thomas uh, spin <laughs> <laughs> flavor. <laughs> tell people about this idea of learned hopefulness. Like, tell people about people need it right now. I mean, I I think a lot of people are gonna. This is the most important part of the interview for them personally. I mean, as much as I'm yeah. sure they love hearing about your life and your stories for them personally and helping them get through the last two and a half years, they're really yeah. looking for this idea of learned hopefulness. They don't know it yet. So I, w- I would love for you to tell them about your work there. So I think I think there were like three important parts to it. The first was that I felt a shift when I started studying positive psychology just by doing the ridiculous things that they were telling us to do, you know, three things that went right and why and gratitude review. It seemed like, oh my God, I'm struggling with, you know, all this emotional thing. And you want me to think what was good today? That's not going to work. But I did it. And when I felt the change, it was like, oh my God, there's something to this. This isn't just about bouncing back, it's bouncing forward. And when I felt the shift, that was when I got really excited about crafting. Let me learn everything I can about the research and the information, blah, 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 blah. And then I, I was, I was very lucky as, uh, perhaps we both were, where, uh, you know, at, at some point when I finished the, um, the program as a student, Marty invited me to, uh, to join the MAP community as his, uh, adjunct, you know, as, uh, you know, as, as his assistant. And so for the last 10 years, I've been doing that, he and James. And the, what that did is it put me in the middle of all the research that was coming in. Yeah. Which was a very, I, I felt a very, um, uh, I felt so honored to be able to kind of hear it firsthand and read it firsthand because I would have been aware of it, but marginally and not in the depth. And then somewhere along the line, Marty wrote his memoir called uh, The Hope Circuit. And, uh, you know, this was the flip from learned helplessness uh, to hopefulness. And that loop in the brain with the dorsal refate nucleus and the uh, prefrontal cortex, when they realized that it wasn't learning that made you helpless. It was an evolutionary shutdown inside the brain based on a risk assessment. That This blew my mind because the risk assessment from the prefrontal cortex was 
what's going on and do I have a chance yeah. to make something happen? And I, I remember he invited about 40 of us to that lecture. I ran out of the room after <laughs> he and Steve Meyer, who had uh, written the paper that explained all this. I ran out of the room and just sketched out the book. It was like, uh, because it changes, the paradigm changes everything. Hope is the only positive emotion that requires negativity or uncertainty to be activated. So none of the other positive emotions really need that. But hope does, because if it's not activated by uncertainty or negativity, there's no need for hope. So now we have a really unique emotional experience that's transformational by design. That's the first thing. The second thing is that all the research up to that point was about helplessness, learned helplessness. And I realized, oh, my goodness, if it's really about risk assessment, then it's about perception. What it's not what happens that matters. It's what we perceive is happening that matters. So the work now becomes, how do you help people challenge their perceptions? Hmm. And in essence, you, you know, just a declarative sentence. There's another way to look at this. So when, when the feces hits the oscillator, as they say, oh boy. It's, <laughs> it's like, well, there's another way to look at this. It starts your brain thinking about alternative perceptions. Because, you, you, I mean, you, you know this, right? George Bonanno's work has been about, th- there's not a traumatic event. It's a potentially traumatic event. It's a PTE. The traumatic reaction is not in the event. It's in the reaction to the event. Okay. If you piggyback on that, if we can feel something different about what's coming at us, if we can see obstacles as challenges, if we can see this as uh, something that I have to move toward this conflict, not avoid or shy away from, all of a sudden it marshals a whole different energetic approach to it. And then, you know, some really functional things like micro goals, you know, micro goals are, uh, I've, I've done a lot of these presentations since the Learned Hopefulness came out. And the, the, the biggest takeaway people have are breaking their day up into micro goals. What can you get done in the next 20 minutes? Yeah. Because it's the recalibration of your goal to something achievable that activates the hope. So when people say, listen, I got 20 minutes, I'm going to answer these three emails. Now you got something bi-directional. I feel a little bit of energy, but then I get that goal done, that goal finishing up now feeds me with a little more energy to get the next 20 minutes done and the next. So, so my day is filled with dozens of 20 minute blocks of get something done, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you, so you really practice what you preach then? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. You know, there are a lot of really neat exercises in your book. And uh, can you give a couple more for people? Sure, sure. I, I think the, there's a couple that I really enjoy. I have people imagine a, uh, a lemon and imagine cutting that lemon in half and um, uh, smelling lemon and then picking half of that lemon up and then biting into it. And uh, if I took a, a while to set that whole thing up, everybody produces saliva. Uh, and there's all done with imagination. And then if I were right behind that, ask you to imagine somebody you love and who loves you. And 
do you feel something in your body? And if you do, where and what do you feel? People will point to their heart and they'll say they feel a warmth. Now, neither the lemon nor the lover, as my students have pointed out, are there, right? Uh, but through your, your direction of your thought, the imagination of one or the other, you change your biochemistry. And so it's just, that would be the first thing I would say is to be, to recognize that, um, your, your thoughts will go in the direction that you send them. And so if you send them on the lemon thing, the rumination thing, the intrusive rumination thing, that's what you're going to get. But if you have deliberate rumination, which is the correction, to think about people you love, to think about something positive, what'll start to happen is it'll change your positive, you know, your positivity. So if you're in a dark space and you feel the intrusive rumination, imagining somebody you love is one of the quickest ways to break the downward cycle. At the very least, it'll neutralize it. And on the other side, it'll start a, a an upward spiral. The other one that I, I would say, in addition to the micro goals and, and using the, uh, uh, the love is to practice kindness. Now that sounds a little Californian, but to practice kindness, like to look for ways to be kind. And I will tell you, I thought this was nothing but bull when I first, uh, read about it and heard about it, but picking one day a week hmm. to do five acts of kindness. So like, you, you know, like my day is, is Thursday, right? Every Thursday I go out, I look for five acts of kindness, either that I witness or that I take part in or acknowledge, nice. right? right? So like today, Scott, if you drop a book, I can't help you. I mean, come back on my Thursday. Yeah, yeah, it got to be a Thursday. <laughs> got to be a Thursday. I'd say, geez, Scott, couldn't you drop this on a, a – it doesn't mean you can't be kind the other days. But those five acts of kindness, recognizing that there is – by activating a, a love, you can truncate a downward spiral and, and reverse it. And using the micro goals are really three very – they're simple. Very simple, right? None of these things are, are rocket science, but they they make changes because it changes your perception about the world we're in. If you think, I can't wait to do something kind uh, today. Today's my day. I'm going to do something kind. Boom. I'm thinking about a person who loves me rather than the next damn thing that's going to come along, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And I've got 20 minutes to make something happen. Uh, let me pick a goal, get it done, and feel good about myself. Oh, wow. These are great, great tips for people. In your more recent incarnation stage of life, you're at Columbia Teachers College, and you are part of a spirituality program there, spiritual psychology. And I'd like you to talk a little about that program and how you, you know, can you explain to people how hope and spirituality work together? Mm, what a great, great, uh, great point. I was teaching as an adjunct there for five or six years. Uh, I designed and was teaching the positive psychology course. And um, they were looking for an academic director. And I certainly was not um, 
a person that would have applied for that. That's not that wouldn't have been something I would have aspired to or thought I could could manage. But uh, Dr. Lisa Miller, who runs that program, uh, apparently they were having trouble finding somebody that the whole team and group could uh, agree on. And uh, she just called me up one day and said, listen, I put your name into the into the running here. And people said, if you'll take it, that they would agree to it. And I was like, really? I guess I hadn't aggravated enough folks yet. Everyone loves you. (laughs) Come on, man. Everyone loves you. Yeah, well, we'll 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 see what happens downstream. But at least they didn't, uh, you know, they were ready to throw me out. And so I very, you know, uh, I I really had to think about it because it's a massive change. You know, I have had a big practice. I was teaching. You know, it's like it just. Uh, but man, I I said, geez, this is a, an opportunity to put all this stuff into play with the next generation. You know, we get we, we and this program is the first of its kind. You know, it's spirituality, mind, body, and um, we have a whole institute, uh, a spirit, mind, body institute, where we have everything from uh, ecology and working on uh, the planet to um, very deep research. You know, uh, Dr. Miller's work and her most recent book on uh, the awakened brain is uh, showing all the neuropsych correlates of uh, spirituality. Um, and we have a, a, just a phenomenal faculty who are, we have uh, three main domains. So we have schools with spirit where uh, we bring a spiritual curriculum back into the public schools, private schools. And uh, we have uh, faculty that are superb at helping teachers uh, sort of fold in this idea of purpose, meaning, and spirituality into the curriculum, you know, reading stories and developing curriculum that uh, awaken children. And then we have um, spiritual entrepreneurship. So, uh, you know, we've even invaded the business world. And quite honestly, our, our stats for graduates um, starting and maintaining businesses is higher than uh, right now. It's higher than the Columbia Business School, Wharton, or Harvard's. Because there's literally spirit behind it. Now we have a small group. We're not we're not an MBA, but when they start their business, it's got soul to it. There's something about it doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way. And then we have a wellness track. So if people want to learn how to design webinars or do workshops, like your your beautiful course that uh, I've uh, recommended to so many people, you know, you put that together. You put it. On, on the book and the work and the research and how do you enact that? Well, a lot of people have those ideas, but they don't know how to bring them forward. So we have a whole program in that. And, you know, and then of, of course we have uh, equine therapy. Uh, we have animal human bond. And then we have all the classic stuff like on Jungian psychology as well, the history. And, and then of course I teach the positive psychology and, and the first course offered at a university on the healing power of hope. So we use all the new research uh, there. Tell us more about that. (laughs) Well, that was very exciting. Uh, After the book came out, actually, Dr. Miller, again, she, she, she's, she's a, I I just have to take a moment to say between her and Marty, I feel just very blessed and lucky to have that kind of support in my life. Uh, She was like, you know, and me and you, (laughs) 
You don't leave me out of your support system? <laughs> I thought it was implied. You know, I'm sorry. I said, that's right. I, I, I have three major sources of support here. And, I'm one of uh, your biggest fans. Isn't that true? You know, you know, and, and just to take a minute, Scott, you know, a lot of people didn't live that who are probably listening to this broadcast didn't live through the sixties and the, the revolution of humanism and humanistic psychology. And man, I have to tell you, when, when you and I started to know one another a bit more and I could see what you were doing, it was like, Oh my God, this is, this is what we needed back then. This is what the, you know, there was a lot of good in the sixties that we yeah. had to shelve for a while and bring back. Yeah. But I, I, I think that as an inspiration, it's like, Oh man, Scott's, Scott's doing what I, I hope to be able to bring in, into the world something that is, uh, valid and updated. And uh, take some of the ideas that really never got a chance to fully flourish and bring them back and uh, make them sing. Oh, well, you're doing it. You're doing it. I mean, the uh, intersection between hope and spirituality and putting that on a firm psychological and, and scientific foundation is is a really special niche. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to say about that connection that, yeah. that you're excited about right now? Yeah. You know, the first thing is hope, optimism, and faith, right? People interchange those terms all the time. But yeah. the truth is, from a more scientific perspective, is when we talk about hope, it's what it is that you believe you can do to change the future. It's very personal. It's a, it's a, it's a call to action. It's something that you believe you can do. Whereas optimism, as I'm sure you know, is, is generic. You know, I, I feel something good is going to happen. Uh, you know, and as uh, Angela uh, Duckworth says, you know, I think tomorrow is going to be good is better than I'm going to do something to make tomorrow good. First one is optimism and second one is, is hope, you know. But faith uh, is when something greater than you is going to take care of the future. So it's it's not that you believe something good is going to happen or you are going to make something happen. It's that something else is going to take care of that, right? Now, the best description I ever heard of that came from um, Catfish Hunter, who was a pitcher. Uh, and when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, they had interviews with him where he talked about how much he trained and trained in all the different weathers to keep his arm in good shape and this and that and the other thing. And what he said is, I worked really hard, really hard, so that I had as much control over that ball as I could. But at some point, I had to let it go. And I thought, hmm, that's it. And isn't that the, the intersection? With hope, we do everything we can to align ourselves with God's grace, with the universe, with whatever the source is. So we do our part, and uh, then the universe does its part. Oh, wow. Maybe we should end there. Um, but uh, <laughs> let me uh, let me just do a quick wrap-up here because – your your life is uh it's it, you've done so many seemingly disparate things but they all seem very connected to me when i read your 2014 paper positive group psychotherapy modified for adults with intellectual disabilities up to reading your work on positive interactive behavioral therapy reading your work on learned hopefulness reading your work about you did deinstitutionalizing certain places it's 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 it, it there's this common th um what would you describe the common theme because it seems obvious to me but what what do you see it as i think hope 
<laughs> there you go. Might, there it is. <laughs> Thank you very much and good night. <laughs> <laughs> Can I add something? Yeah, yeah, please. Um, I also see the common theme as human potential. Mm, isn't that the truth? You know, Isn't and that that's, that's where we really bond. That's really, yeah. really, really bond. Dan, thank you so much for being such a bright light in this world and uh, for coming to my podcast. Finally, we got we got the great Dan Tomasulo on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you are awesome, Scott. And for your work and podcast, man, bringing yeah. this out into the world, just awesome to watch. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.